Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., To the tidbit brought to you by Curate. We're live at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and I'm your host and CEO of Curate, Kim Bryden. Do you run a small business or have dreams to start one? Here at the tidbit, we've got your back. Each week, we talk through tidbits of knowledge around starting and running a small business with a food and beverage lens. At the time of this recording, wildfires are ablaze throughout California. Unfortunately, the uptick of natural disasters is only going to increase, especially with our global economic powers not holding one another accountable for big industry change. And because of this, we've seen an emergence of a lot of local city and state initiatives and legislature that couple the need for fundamental systems change between how business operates and what we are doing to our planet. One of these initiatives is Restore California. According to an article posted in Civil Eats, participating restaurants add an optional 1% for healthy soil surcharge to customer tabs. There are already 30 restaurants signed up for the Restore California surcharge, and if 1% of the state's restaurants follow suit, the group estimates it could generate $10 million per year in funding for healthy soils. The project itself is a collaboration between the California Air Resources Board, CARB, um, the California Department of Food and Agriculture, and the Perennial Farming Initiative. And when it's fully up and running, the proceeds will go directly to farms and ranches working to improve soil health as a complement to the state's Healthy Soils Program. And the article goes on to read that Restore California also offers the state a timely boost in its efforts because Governor Gavin Newsom's pledge is to put $28 million into healthy soil funding in this year's budget. So I wanted to bring this to light because this initiative demonstrates this interconnectivity between farming practices, how we are taking care of our planet, and and fundamentally how it's interwoven with business operations and consumers' choice. As longtime listeners of the tidbit know, this is a favorite topic of mine, and we really talk about it quite often. So I I wanted to dive into this further. How does a business owner, through their actions, take matters into their own hands? If not by adding this 1% surcharge for healthy soil, what are other best practices you you can take in establishing these critical farm to restaurant partnerships that are good for business and good for the planet? And that's why I've asked Dave Weissman, co-founder of Little Sesame, to join us today. Little Sesame is an ingredient-driven Mediterranean casual restaurant in Washington, D.C. Dave works with his partner Ronan and Nick Weissman and heads up the finance and development areas of the restaurant's growth and operations. He is proud to be a part of a business that is making people and the planet a healthier place. We'll take a quick break and be right back.
are listening to The Tidbit. I'm your show host and the CEO of Curate, Kim Bryden. We are chatting about building fast casual restaurants with Dave Weisman, co-founder of Little Sesame. Dave, welcome. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I'm so excited to talk with you. For those of you who don't know, um, Dave, alongside his cousin Nick and Chef Ronan, founded Little Sesame in a 500-square-foot basement space in D.C. in 2015. And now you have two locations, downtown on L Street and on 6th Street behind the Capital One Arena. So I just want to first have our listeners learn more about you personally. How did you decide to jump on ship? Well, I'm going to say this differently. How did you decide to get off of your normal career path and jump on board this uh, fast casual train? I guess it all started with Jerry Maguire, which is a great movie. Yeah, very influential (laughs) to me. You know, I had a mission statement Uh uh, many years ago, but I was always wanting to go into sports management. Mm. And that path kind of led me to go to law school. And it was something that I wanted to do. And I was lucky enough to work for a great company that did sports management. Mm. But being on the inside, it was much more client service, less negotiation, and not as intellectually fulfilling as what I wanted to do. So Mm. I'd always loved the business and negotiation aspect. And after I graduated law school, I was looking for my next opportunity, Nick, who's my business partner, a common misconception is that we're brothers. Our dads are actually <laughs> brothers, so he's my first cousin. Uh-huh. Reached out because he was connected to Forest City because he had cooked in New York for 10 years and kind of had a, a sense on where the food world was going. Mm-hmm. And he knew he needed someone to fill in the gaps where he might not necessarily be strong on the business and finance side, and I could fill in the marketing gaps. And that's kind of why we teamed up. And we started our first restaurant, DGS, which I think is something we've always tried to do is make concepts that are personal and authentic to us because Mm -hmm. I think once you try and do things because they're hot or they're trendy or they're not necessarily authentic is where you really lose your way yeah that's a really valid point just for anyone listening who might not know the acronym DGS what was that first concept and what did it stand for so it was a Jewish delicatessen Uh it was a modern new age next generation delicatessen and it was something that we were very proud of was a great project and we had a private dining room in the basement and for various reasons you know your private dining customer in dc wants something a little more elevated and upscale wasn't getting the pickup we wanted so Mm. we had to figure out what are we going to do with this room yes hence hence the birth of little sesame oh my gosh and i am so i just want to emphasize this 500 square foot space because with (laughs) with a location so tiny you have to make hard decisions. I mean, about buying product, storing the product, managing your labor, what sort of menu choices you have to make. So with that being your jumping off pad, how did that experience of needing to focus and to parse down really spur your operations and growth today? I think that's a great question. I think having that small space does force you to prioritize. And it's also something, when you do something like that, we look you know, I, I try and use my law degree, and one of the things that a law degree teaches is analogous reasoning. You look at oh, how, oh yeah, big word. What is anal- analogous reasoning? So it's, it's simple. You know, in the case of law, is how you make an argument. You look at how a judge decided a certain case and the precedent. You say, how is this distinct? My situation, how is this the same? Mm. And you craft your argument based around that. Mm-hmm. So when we look at our business, it's like, what is distinct and how is it different? And for Little Sesame, when you look at a, some, a small footprint space, there are a lot of places like that in the world. And I think mm-hmm. this is where you look at New York, you look at Tokyo, you look at London, these high density cities have these small footprint spaces and how do they succeed? They focus on one thing and they try and yes. do it really well. 
Oh my gosh, I could not agree more. Even the emergence of, um, there's an episode on partner radio program, Shift Drink, that features this gentleman out of Los Angeles in his uh, sandwich shop, Konbi, and they do like egg salad sandwiches based off of a Japanese egg salad sandwich. Oh yeah, they do it for the gram. I've yeah. seen the egg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I think that is so wise of being able to focus in on what is the thing that is your core competency and just executing that time and time again. Exactly. And we had this small space and we wanted to do something that would work and would kind of fit into how we viewed our space and we viewed our concept. And Nick cooked in New York and he cooked with this um, great guy, Ronan, who he had known, who I now know is like our business partner and a great mm-hmm. friend. And they were cooking it for Michael White and Alta Morea. But after their meal, after they cooked, they'd go out to eat hummus. And mm-hmm. it was very authentic to them. And Ronan's from Israel and it was kind of a way they bonded and it was very satisfying and it aligned with the values and kind of what we're talking about. You know, we were selling a lot of beef at DGS and it was something mm. we were very adamant about. We were going to source this correctly and this is kind of where informed and we weren't going to compromise on this because, you know, if you want to make, you know, a dirty dollar, there's other ways to do it, not in the food business that are probably more remunerative and probably less stress. Uh-huh. So let's stand by our principles. Yes. But this allowed us to kind of focus and shift away mm-hmm. from selling a lot of meat, which I think when you look at how do you sustain, be sustainable and how do you be local and how do you support local food systems, it really has to kind of be baked into the beginning. Absolutely. And, and that decision of hummus, right? That being the fundamental core competency here. Yeah. How, how it, did that emerge even further? It, it, it emerged because, you know, it was something that we like to eat. Um, it was something that feels good about us. I think another challenge kind of that we want to address and there's a lot of talk, and I, you know, certainly I'm a big listener of the show, big fan. I urge oh, everyone, thank you, <laughs> absolutely, to check out the back episodes. Is when people talk about the triple bottom line, yes, and what's good for everything else. So, for us, it's a triple bottom line, but they're not all weighted equally. I think you know, a business has to be sustainable, and you have to have a business model mm-hmm. that's authentic to you, and it has to start at the beginning. So, hummus is something that we love, and it's authentic to us, and it's the way Ronan eats it, and it's rooted in authenticity, but where we could bring and how we could kind of differentiate and innovate is you take Ronan and Nick's sensibility. Nick is much more, you know, kind of modern American. He eats vegan at home. He cooks vegan. So it's how do we meld these two things and Mm -hmm. take something that people crave as traditional and kind of make it our own. Yes. So that's kind of how we got to doing the hummus style that we do, a little sesame, doing it in the basement, and, (laughs) you know, taking and really stripping down. And the other thing certainly for a fast casual, when you talk about the size being a constraint. Right. You know, no matter if you're 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 square feet, size is going to constrain you in a fast casual. It's the same thing with full service. Yeah. Everyone wants to eat at the same time. Yes. <laughs> and have it quickly, especially during lunch service. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. You know, that's funny. When I talk to friends about work, everyone always complains, oh, you know, I'm so busy today and then I'm not busy. I think we all wish we could work, go in, work a mellow eight hours. You know, mm-hmm. you get the same amount of volume, but it doesn't work like that. No, it does not. You get all your volume at the same time. Yes. So you have to be fast and you have to be small. And it's about stripping down and focusing on those things that really matter and are kind of the core value drivers. Yeah. And I mean, to, to note your menu, almost all options you could, I guess, have a side of a protein, but that's not even the main focus of a lot of your pre-made bowls. I think there's only ever one or two that come with, let's say, chicken. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you know, part of that is that's 
you know, purity tests. I think it's important because that we do sell a lot of chicken and people do want that and you mm -hmm. have to give people what they want. But most of our bowls have more than enough protein. They're vegetarian centric. We can add an egg. Totally. It, it's nuts to me that, and one of the other things I think is a bigger challenge for the people in the vegan vegetarian food system is we need to combat this protein myth. Mm, like there, yes. There was a great article that came out that you know most Americans don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. DC was number one in most fruits, but it was like 15%. Mm. So we don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. But you know the one thing pretty much everyone gets enough of? Protein. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it's how do we educate and tell people that, look, our hummus bowls have 16 to 18 grams of protein. That's enough. Like right. you, you don't need to have more than that, and it's a filling meal. And that's one of the things that gravitated to, to us is we could serve that vegetarian protein, educate people in that way yeah. that you could have a little sesame hummus bowl for dinner and you can go work out and you'll feel good. And it's good fuel. It's a complete protein. Absolutely. And especially with the hummus bowl, you can have a side salad or a pita. But again, the it's not a sandwich. It's not a pizza. It's not like carb heavy first. Exactly. And I think that's a huge... I'm, I am hesitant to say the word trend because I don't think it's a trend. I just think it's the way people are craving eating now. I think so. And I think for us, you know, I, I resist to say it's a trend too because you look for us, you know, this is the way Ronan has authentically ate homeless his whole life. And if you go. Yes, absolutely. And I was lucky enough to be in Israel recently. With me. With you. That's where we met. <laughs> and you see, that's how people eat. And that's how a lot of people derive their protein from vegan, bean, legume protein, pulses. Mm -hmm. And when you look at something like that, it's like, how do I do an environmentally friendly business? I think one of the interesting ways to do that is you look at the way that people did things before. Yes. Like you can go and integrate or innovate and you can do the, you know, plant-based meats or the growing meat in the lab culture, mm -hmm. which is great. And I think there's a place for that. And I think there's useful and we certainly should use technology to have better protein delivery mechanisms than factory farming. But the most authentic and natural and easiest way to do it is how are people around the world getting their nutritional needs and their protein? Chickpeas are an absolute staple of that around the world. I could not agree more. And I want to talk about your chickpeas in particular even further. But we're going to take a nice little micro break right now and then jump into those. Listening to the tidbit. I'm Kim Bryden, your host and the CEO of Curate. We are here with Dave Weissman, co-founder of Little Sesame, and we are talking being conscious about our sourcing practices and the complexities of farming in America. <laughs> Hello again, Dave. It's good to be back. <laughs> um, so you work with a variety of small business owners in sourcing product for Little Sesame. How did you go about identifying those relationships? Because I've had many different small business owners not even know where to begin. And I, and I think it could be around, again, this identification of what are your demand needs that made you realize then what you needed to source. I think it's, it's what are your demand needs? What are your demand drivers? I think homeless is very similar to me. There's a, again, with the analogous reasoning, there's a great analogy to bread. It's mm. a very simple product but it's a very artisanal product. It has a lot, not a lot of ingredients and you can either get it mass produced, you know, your Wonder Breads, or you can get it beautifully done. Yes. So you certainly have your mass produced hummus, but for us, 
we knew that we wanted to really focus on our process and our ingredients. Mm -hmm. So it was looking at what are the core value drivers of our business, what is our differentiation, and how can we work local farmers and suppliers into that. Yes. And we were lucky and you know, we it came from an authentic place and I'd urge anyone who, who wants to start a you know environmentally conscious food business, you have to do the homework and build the relationships and go to the farmer's markets. We, Nick's um, wife, Lee, worked at Food Corps in Montana, and she met this great guy, Casey Bailey. Mm. And it was one of the reasons, you know, when we thought about doing the chickpea idea, it was like a great value add. We know someone who can grow all the chickpeas Uh in Montana for us, and we can direct import, which we're lucky enough to have the scale and to have the ability to save them, you know, it saves us money to do that. But that's not always necessarily realistic. So you got to figure out the relationships that work for you. That is, I just want to emphasize this because the fact that you dissected the end product of hummus and said, what is the raw ingredient that I know I am going to need so much of that huge demand need? Then you thought backwards, okay, how can I establish a relationship with someone who has the same core values I do? who I can rely on, that we have a relationship with, and therefore found this chickpea farmer in Montana. It's beautiful. Well, thank you. I think the restaurant business is a hard business, but it's an easy business to understand when you break Mm -hmm. it down to people like this. You basically have a factory where you you take your raw product, you manufacture it, and then you try and sell it in your showroom for much (laughs) of a markup as you can, like any other business. Uh And if you were in a business and you had raw materials, wouldn't you want a key supplier? Wouldn't you want to do the homework to say, what's the best I can get? Isn't there a differentiation? I think that's how you have to look at your business. What do I need the most of? What is the most critical to my product path? And how do I get the best? And how do I ensure great outcomes for everyone? Yeah, uh, beautifully put. Um, And... If you are somebody who's just starting a business and wanted to be conscious about your supply chain, creating value and these win-win relationships, because I, again, have seen a lot of small business owners start and let's say just buy all of their product from Costco. You know, it's really important as you're beginning to, as you've just put, bake in these core values, these core tenets of what you believe from the jump. So what did you do when you were starting Little Sesame and how would you advise a small business owner to take that same action? I think it comes down to, you know, why are you doing this? Most people who start restaurants aren't saying, I want to do this to be the richest man or woman in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to feed people in a conscious way. Mm-hmm. So really bake that into your initial assumptions, and, but understand that the laws of gravity apply to your business and any other business. If you want to buy all local and you want, you're gonna to have to charge a premium. So you're gonna to have to understand and underwrite your business plan to say, I'm undergoing a premium brand strategy. I need to invest in brand. I need to find my meaningful differentiation. I need to make that work. Mm-hmm. For, for Little Sesame, you know, we think we bring tremendous value add through the talent of our team. We create you know, healthy, filling lunches and we're able to deliver that at a price that people can afford and that's affordable for people. And when you start your business, you have to say, am I in the range of affordability? Can I underwrite this business? If you know you want to buy all super premium local grass-fed beef, you're probably selling your burgers at the top of the price point. So it's yes. how do I get people in and how do I do that? So mm-hmm. I think it's designing a menu, a concept, a, you know, a product path where you can deliver value around the value chain because the consumer at the end of the day has to be a part of that thinking. I think so many people think only backwards and not forwards. Yes. If the consumer doesn't feel like they're getting value and you know, you and I could debate the ethical supply chain and whether people are virtue signaling and greenwashing until the cows, but if the people don't come in the door and they don't want to buy the product, right. 
you know, we're ha- you're having that debate, like being angry on your couch, you're not in, <laughs> yeah. in business. We're just having this like academic debate, but it's not, as we say at Curate, we're not shifting the dollar and having people really vote with their dollar about where they're shopping, but it has to still be a price point that people can feel reasonable about making a switch from a mass produced pot belly to right. little Abs- sesame. Absolutely, and I think, you know, again to reference, I think you and I are both big fans of OKRs, you know, objectives and key results. Yes, a previous tidbit episode, tune in. <laughs> so you have to look at those objectives and you have to weave the sustainability and supply objectives in, but the business drivers have to be as much a part of that mm-hmm. as the sustainability drivers. Yeah, because if you go out of business, then none of it matters. Exactly. If your business isn't sustainable, you can't help build a more sustainable food system. So I think it really comes down to doing your homework, looking at the market, creating a con, you know, I hate the word concept, but I think that's what people use right now, mm-hmm. a business, a concept, a, a real differentiated product where you can sell something that you can stand behind and you're proud of and can work with local farmers and you can also be in business. I think another interesting way you can do it is you give back to the community and yeah. find local charities to support. I know, you know, Sweet Green does a great job with this. We have our little seedlings where we just gave a, Ooh, a five, little seedlings. Tell us more. So we gave a five thousand dollar grant through the Young Farmers Coalition to a local farmer because we're committed to supporting local agriculture and building the system that yeah. can grow. And instead of, you know, it is a challenge sometimes to directly buy from mm-hmm. small farms, especially mm-hmm. when you're doing a lot of volume and you know you have scale. So I think. Part of it is holding your wholesalers accountable and buying seasonally. Yes. But then also supporting the ecosystem where you can. So those small farmers. Where you can direct source when they're hitting the capacity you need. Exactly. And sometimes maybe direct source is the end goal. But sometimes it's providing a grant or you know buying a little bit from a local farm so they can enter into those wholesale relationships. Yes. I am so glad you brought this up. And I would really like to call this out for any listener who is a small business owner right now. One of the most challenging things about sourcing directly from local suppliers I have found is that you may be developing a great product with all of these amazing core values baked into your operation. But if you fundamentally don't also know how to run your business, i.e. respond to emails in a timely manner, pick up the phone, invoice properly... (laughs) These are all really important parts of being in that like win-win mutual relationship, which ultimately lead to someone continuing to buy from you or not. And so I think that's another piece that I've always found at Curate when we're sourcing from local suppliers is the product is one piece of it, but you also being in a relationship with me or with the person that's buying from you is so critical to this and having mutual respect for each other's time. (laughs) is really important absolutely i think you know the professionalism and having the fundamentals of you know working with suppliers and your case is always reliable if we put an order in and we didn't get it that would cripple our business so his the fact that when we order something it gets put on a a truck and sent to us you have that trust that trust exactly yes and i do not want to gloss over that for one more second of this show because (laughs) I think that's the the crux of this all is if you do want to build these more equitable and environmentally friendly food businesses both parties need to know their their responsibility to one another too right exactly you know I think everyone wants to buy local and wants to do the right thing and support 
what they can in the ecosystem. But at the end of the day, like we all have our own businesses to run. Yes. And it can't be like romper room where you're trying to chase down all, all your suppliers because they don't <laughs> <Romper> have romper room. <laughs> right, because they don't have things in line. So it's really yes. It's just the fundamentals of any business. Like your differentiation should be that you're local and you're great. Your differentiation should not be that you know we're just starting out. Like you have, unfortunately, no one cares. You have to be able yes. to answer emails, be reliable, and show up. Just like you could say, I have the most you know purely sourced great ingredients. But if the line doesn't execute the food and doesn't come out, or you mess up people's orders, and you know, wait times are forty minutes plus, like. What? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's always people are like, oh, are you happy? There's a huge line outside Little Sesame. No, I'm not. No, let's move faster. <laughs> let's go. I want to get these people in and out. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm super grateful that people are willing to wait in line, but our part of the bargain is the honor. Let's get them in and out as fast as they can with the quality, consistent product that we try and put out. Yeah, absolutely. And just to tie back to Little Seedlings for a second, when you were going through this process of thinking about the young farmers that you were potentially going to award this grant to, are there certain aspects of actually farming in America, this small to mid-sized farmer that you've seen as biggest challenges in scaling up their operations to meet your demand? Yeah, just everything. Every- uh, <laughs> I, it, yeah. It's, it's a great dream and it's a great way of life and farmers are very important, but we don't necessarily support those farmers mm-hmm. just like we don't necessarily support our small business people. A lot of... At large. At large. Yeah, a lot just of, like the world. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of support goes to, you know, the big ag players that are able to, have, through regulatory capture, command a lot of the government attention. So I think it's getting the grants, surviving the seasons, you know, developing the supply chain relationships. And kind of what we touched on is that there's so many knowledge gaps in running a business and especially a business as labor intensive as farming. Yeah. It's how do you fill in those knowledge gaps, get the resources you need and get the runway. I mean, I think people talk about small businesses and Oh, you know, small businesses fail. Well, a lot of the reasons small businesses fail is it's very hard to create enterprise value when you're just starting out a farm. Totally. And the second things go wrong, like who's going to be there to help you? Yeah. And you need to have all that planned out before you start. And you need to have enough capital. And you need to have your backup plans because if you don't have enterprise value, there is no one who's going to come in and necessarily support mm-hmm. like a natural stage in your growth. Ugh. And especially with, as we mentioned at the top of the show, wildfires, extreme rains in the Midwest. Like there are just things that you cannot always plan or predict. And so if you don't have that runway to move past these seasons of trouble, it is very crippling. One of our mentors is like, not every day is Christmas. And he also says like, it's not hard to take money to the bank. Mm. So it's like, those are the easy parts. Sometimes are good. It's figuring out. And, you know, you can't complain about a flood if you didn't build the dam. You Ah. have to prepare because it is going to rain and it is going to flood eventually. Yes. And I think a big part also is education. And Mm -hmm. we, you know, we all need to be partners up and down the supply chain to educate people about the importance of buying this stuff Mm -hmm. and incorporating it into your day however you can in a way that's not, you know, preachy or prescriptive or if you don't do 100%, it's like, okay, maybe, you know, you, for whatever reason, whether it's budgetary or you like meat, can't not buy factory farm meat or it's not in your wheelhouse okay well maybe take a day or two and eat vegetarian eat vegan and try and do it in responsible ways yeah absolutely so where can people find little sesame both in real life online how can they follow you uh they can find us a lot of places the best place to find us is actually try and try the product is our two stores we have one in the golden triangle mm-hmm. 1828 l street we have one in chinatown 736 6th street mm-hmm. we're also on instagram at eat little sesame www.eatlittlesesame.com are all great ways to find us. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here. And listener, if you want more information about 
industry tips and trends, you can head over to curate.co, C-U-R-E-A-T-E.co to sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter, also called The Tidbit. Um, in it, we discuss where we're reading, eating, drinking, listening to, and learning. Five quick morsels of information to get you in the know and on top of your game. And we would love if more budding entrepreneurs and listeners like you could find out about The Tidbit. Our mission at Curate has always been including the sharing of education and access to resources, and the best way to reach more folks like you is to leave a review on iTunes. So if you learned something here on the show today, leave a little tidbit in your review. Um, Would love to read it and to hear what what struck you about this episode. Um, And until next time, everyone, remember, scale thoughtfully and source locally. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.